Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And this is the first episode of our seventh season, which is 1983. We're discussing Newberry Honor Book, Dr. DeSoto by William Stieg. And I have a citation from the Newberry and Caldecott Guide, edited by KT Horning. As mice dentists, the diminutive DeSotos have always refused to treat dangerous animals until a miserable fox appears begging for help. The compassionate mice cleverly find a way to rid the fox of his pain while guaranteeing their own safety. Marcy, what did you think of this book? Well, it hits me a little close to home just because I had to do a lot of dental work this week. So I kind of sympathize with the fox at you first. You were doing dental work? Well, I was receiving dental work. Okay. Um, yeah. No, it was it was a difficult week. Um, I mean, hey, home dentistry might be something that's... I know there's been an uptick in, in interest in it. And there huh? are books in the libraries about home dentistry. Well, so seriously, I was reading this book and they talked about how he... Like the bigger animals loved to have Dr. DeSoto work on him because he was so tiny and they could barely feel any pain. And I was like... <gasps> Oh, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> like, like, I was so jealous. I want Dr. DeSoto to work on my mouth. Do you really want a mouse inside your mouth, though? At this point, seriously, like, given the alternatives, I, I would do anything. I would do anything. He is wearing gloves, and he seems pretty hygienic. He wore rain boots to go inside the bigger mouths. Like, I, I think, you know, they seem very meticulous. They seem... Better than some of the alternatives. Yeah, I think home dentistry, while appealing and interesting, probably leaves you in such a shape that you'll need even more extensive professional dentistry. So probably don't do it. But Dr. DeSoto seems very professional, I have to say, and his wife. Yes, his wife seems very professional as well. I just hope that she really does like wearing dresses while she's doing this strenuous work. And it's not something that, it's not just that she feels pressure from the patriarchy. I'll tell you what, though, I did not realize, and I have not read it, but there is a sequel to this book called Dr. DeSoto Goes to Africa. But it totally focuses on the wife and the work that she does in dentistry. Well, that's really good. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, she's very capable as she's shown as being very capable. I just, you know, her, her dresses are a little, they're a little long and they look a little constrictive as far as being able to do a lot of kind of mechanical things, but she seems to make do. That's so, fair. That's fair. So the story is, as Marcy mentioned, Dr. DeSoto and his wife, who's the assistant, dental assistant, they do dentistry on a variety of animals. And just like the citation said, they've decided that they're not going to treat any dangerous animals. So dangerous to mice animals. And they have a little sign out front that says cats and other dangerous animals not accepted for treatment. But one day they look outside and a well-dressed fox has got a bandage around his jaw and he's looking very pitiful. And Dr. DeSoto says, we can't treat you, but he's like wailing and he's got one of those, like, he's got like a bandage that's like a piece of cloth tied around his head, which, did they really do that in olden times? I don't know. It look it looks very familiar. So I feel like I've seen pictures of that. I think people used to get like quote unquote toothache a lot more often. 
you know, and it was due to various reasons, but like they had all kinds of crazy remedies. And one, one of them I know from, from reading other older books was like to, to like wrap it up and put something like a, a liniment on it, assuming that it would help the pain. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's probably what's going on here. Well, I mean, I think I remember seeing this kind of scenario, this like head wrap on like the Three Stooges. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. But I also think at some point, like they probably were more judicious about just pulling your teeth and before modern dentistry, right? Like, Oh, yeah. No, like if I like the one part of uh, the first volume of Roald Dahl's autobiography, Boy... Like, there's one chapter I literally cannot read. I still have to skip over it where, like, he has to have a tooth out and they come chloroform him at his house and pull out the tooth. And then, like, they give him a silver dollar, like, you did a good job. It's so horrifying to me still at the age of, I'm not going to say, that, like, I can't read it. I still have to skip. And it's a kid's book. It's a book for children. I can't even read it now. Well, uh, that's a, this is a much bigger conversation, but it's recently, <laughs> I don't know why I didn't know about it before. Maybe it was willful ignorance, but Roald Dahl is a noted anti-Semite. And so I was going to suggest Fantastic Mr. Fox as a read-alike for this book, but I also don't feel comfortable right now recommending his books because I need to have some moments to myself to think about if I can separate art from artist. And in some cases with his books, I don't think I can. And I don't know if I can in general can keep recommending him. Yeah. I've had problems with that too, because that was a recent discovery for me as well, which it probably should have happened earlier, but I think it was when that movie, the newer version of the witches came out and it, it was brought to my attention maybe by you actually. And <laughs> I just never, yeah. I mean, there are, there are so many things in your life, right? There are thousands, I mean, millions and billions of things in your life. And you, to stop and inspect each one of them is, is this never ending task. And there are some that it doesn't even occur to you to stop and, and look at every single aspect of every single thing. So when you grow up reading certain books and love them, it, it, you don't stop to inspect them for like subtle or in some cases not so subtle flaws like that or not even flaws but like just terrible damaging perspectives yes exactly and it hates hateful allegories well it's it's mind-blowing when you realize it because truly i mean you read something like c.s lewis and you pick it up eventually like no matter what but like with roald Dahl, it is a lot more subtle Especially if you're not particularly aware of those stereotypes that are being played to. Yes. So like if you haven't heard of those stereotypes or if you've heard them like in passing once, it doesn't occur to you every time you read this book that you've been reading since you were six to to associate that. But then once it's brought to your attention, you're like, oh, my God, of course. Yes. But it's yeah. it's, it's just not as blatant as in some other books. And yeah. so it's hard sometimes to recognize it. For what it is. It is. And I think that, I think what you're saying is really right about if when you, if you internalize something as being enjoyable and joyful at a very early age and you don't have those critical skills when you first are introduced to it and the people around you aren't aware of background information or ancillary context, 
you know, yeah, you're left to your own devices and it will take 30 something years for you to realize (laughs) (laughs) there's anti-Semitic subtext in some of Roald Dahl's books. (laughs) Which is upsetting. So it's upsetting. It is. It's very upsetting. But like I said, I'm still having some, some, you know, rolling around in my head about what that means and what that means for me reading him going forward and what I think about that. But, and so in some senses, I, you know, I'm like the DeSotos. I've discovered there's a fox in my brain. Yeah. To continue the story, the problem that occurs is, of course, that once the fox is under the gas and they're working on him, he's murmuring to himself about how delicious he thinks mice are. It's so good. It's actually a really good quote. Soon the fox was in dreamland. Mmm, yummy, he mumbled. How I love them raw with just a pinch of salt and a dry white wine. Which, side note, definitely our drink for this episode. (laughs) Dry white wine? Yeah, it's it's perfect. No, there's got to be some kind of fox cocktail. I want a fox cocktail. (laughs) A foxtail. Foxtail. (laughs) Well... No, but it's, it's it really, and, and so the wife is like, he didn't know what he was saying. And the husband's like, mm, yeah, huh, mm-hmm. we have to take care of ourselves. So they come up with a plan. This is a picture book for those of you who do not know that. And it's a very, it's, so it's standard 32 pages. So after the fox is like thinking to himself, I wonder if it would be horrible if I ate them. There's a full two pages of the DeSotos figuring out how they're going to deal with it. And so you see them creating the the new tooth for the fox, like the cap for the fox. And you see them laying in bed where they hatch a plan and we don't know what the plan is yet. And I just, I find that fascinating in a, in a book so small, so, so short that you have all these switching perspectives that are fully realized and that are really engaging. And you also get a twist. It's true. It's really enjoyable. And the fox is so self-satisfied when he comes back, right? He's so like smiling and happy and joking. He snaps and he's like, oh, just kidding. And Dr. DeSoto is not amused. And they offer him this new formula they've perfected that keeps you from having a toothache forever. And the fox is like, oh, yes, please, I would love that. And so they put it on all of his teeth and they have him hold his mouth closed for a full minute. And, of course, it turns out to be glue. And they're (laughs) like, oh, yeah, I should have mentioned you're not going to be able to open your mouth. It has to permeate the teeth for three days or whatever. And all Permeate he could, the dentine. The dentine. It says all he could do was say, Franco Berry Mush, through his clenched teeth and get up and leave. He tried to do so with dignity. And so they kissed each other and took the day off. And the, the thing that I love about this book, I mean, it's one of the shortest Newbery books, you know, at 32 pages. And there's so much in it. You know, it's not... It's not a story with like a heartwarming moral. There is, it's, it is pleasing that the mice won out, but there's this complex idea behind it that there are going to be people in the world who try to screw you over, like even when you do them a good turn. And they're not sugarcoating that idea for kids. Like they're making it very, very clear. And it's so interesting. Well, I think not just that. I think it has this whole layer of like, you should do good in the world, but look out for yourself. Yeah. Like it definitely encourages like crafty and clever thinking. 
and be prepared for the obstacles that come your way, even if you invite them into your life or your office or whatever. I, I think there's so many big ideas that are handled in this and they're handled so well. And it's very interesting to read it as an adult because you see the one, you know, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble was one of my favorite books growing up. Oh my God. Yes. And so to see the donkeys in an early early spread is very, very cool. And it makes me always it makes me think maybe they're like Sylvester's relatives or neighbors or something. Or Donkey from Shrek. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which I, you know, I've never read his Shrek. I just have seen the movies. It's great, actually, because Shrek is not anywhere near as heartwarming in the book as he was in the movies. There is no like inner beauty moral. He's just like, I'm disgusting and I love it. And he's happy and he gets his princess and like, (laughs) they're just ogre and the reveling in the ogre-iness. I kind of love that. I kind of love a grump who loves being a grump. Yeah. And a gross That's one of my things. Yeah, that's one of my, that's one of the things that I really enjoy actually. But I will say that I did, in desperation for a summer reading program several years back, I did a, like a interactive Shrek screening and (laughs) without having seen it in a while. And uh, there's, there's some, there's some butt and fart jokes that the parents did not enjoy. And that was quite an interesting, like, hour and a half. Mm. Well, I'll tell you, like, we can talk more about William Stieg later as a person. But one of the things that I really enjoyed was that somebody asked him once what he thought about Shrek. And he didn't see the movie. Like, he he saw a screening of it when he was in his 90s. So this dude in his 90s who wrote classic children's books. And he said, it's vulgar. It's disgusting. And I love it. Like, it was just, <laughs> like, that's the kind of dude he was and kind of how he wrote, but, like, so honest, right? Like, it's just, it was hilarious to me that this this older man with, like, this huge following of of art fans, but also literature fans, but also, like, satirist fans was just like, it's so vulgar. I love it. Like, I love what they turned my creation into because it's just like all fart jokes, (laughs) you know? Well, that's something that I think we've maybe never talked about, but something that I, I find again and again, like one, if someone is a, like someone creates children's literature or pictures for children's books, I feel like somehow society as a whole defangs them, like somehow makes them into like affable, like, you know, marshmallowy grandparent figures, but like you have like Stieg and then you had like Marie Sindak and like, not saying that, that these, they're not good people by any means, but they're not like just little fluffy cloud people, right? (laughs) They're like really funny, like a very cutting and funny and smart and shrewd and, they have some they have some bite, you know? Yeah, I think also as as you know, people get older, of course, when someone is becomes elderly, people seem to discount them too. But, you know, in a lot of cases, these very witty children's authors have, you know, kept or have kept their really biting wit. And I think, you know, kids respond to that. Kids love it because they're there's just like a little bit of a lack of a filter that kids respond to. Well, I think his his personal like career sort of informed that, right? So he didn't start writing kids books until he was in his 60s. He drew for the New Yorker. He did hundreds of covers and thousands of cartoons for the New Yorker. And he just did these very like odd 
cutting, you know, sometimes very, some of them were so like Picasso inspired and too personal that he actually put them into books that were collections of his cartoons that were like not even fit for the New Yorker exactly. Mm -hmm. He got rejected for a lot of that, but he, he took that attitude, I think, into children's book writing. Like you mentioned Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. I can't even read that as a parent. I cannot read that book. My daughter was reading it in class the other day and I, I can't, deal. It's too hard. It's too scary for me. Like not because of monsters, but because the scary parts in it are like parental grief for a lost child or like a child not being able to tell its parents that it needed help. Like I can't deal with that now as an adult, but he's not filtering it for kids. And it's presented so well that it's not the kind of thing that gives little kids nightmares, but it's, it's real. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think that's that's one of the beauties of his picture books in particular, that they deal with these bigger topics, but they scale them down for a lot of different age audiences, and you can get a lot of different things out of them. I think, for me, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble continues to be really like a nostalgic read, and it was, I, I think, partially because when I was a kid, I would, I was really quiet a lot of times, and I would just read, and like... I would think about like, what if I I never thought about the bigger context of like leaving my family or not being able to be found. I thought of like, what if I could just sit somewhere and read like a rock, you know, forever, like as much as I wanted to. And it was that kind of aspect of like that fantasy of not fairies and elves and trolls, but like the fantasy of getting to do your favorite thing, you know, yeah, getting to getting to freeze in one place and see nature move all around you throughout the year and get to just observe. It's that kind of thing that I think I responded to most of all. But around here, it's pizza, pizza is, is the, the household favorite around here. That but. is a favorite of ours as well. And We've never actually done it though. Have you oh ever my have God. You actually done it? Oh, oh my God. Like I can't even say the word pizza without having to put my children in a pretend oven and slice them up and then chase them around the house while they laugh because pizza makers are not supposed to tickle their pizzas. And like the whole like the pizza gets captured and hugged means like I have to run around the house for 10 minutes while they like hysterically laugh. It's, it's their favorite. It's their absolute favorite. And that's, I don't know. That's the thing about these books is that he he combines the most ridiculous silliness with like these truths. I don't, <laughs> there's always these parental figures that are like kind of dumpy and authoritative, but like they come up with these hilarious, funny ideas. And it's so true to real parenting, you know, when in Pizza Pizza, his parents are like, oh, guess it'll cheer you up. You know, you, it's raining outside. You can't play outside, but I guess you might want to be made into a pizza. And like, they laugh their heads off every t- I could, I could literally recite you that book right now. <laughs> yeah. For those, for those who haven't read it, it's this really great book where, as Marcy said, it's raining outside. So Pete can't go out and play baseball. And so his parents make him into a pizza and that involves uh, rolling him on the table and then kneading the dough, pulling it this way and that. (laughs) That's the thing that I love. That's one of the things I love about that book too, is that it says, it'll be like, then you sprinkle on the cheese. It's and then in in parentheses, it's like, it's really paper. Yeah. (laughs) 
And <laughs> I can't help but think, one, it keeps it grounded in a magical realism, right? So a kid knows that this is fake, but it's also really exciting. And then it also lets them know, like, don't get cheese out of the refrigerator and put it on yourself <laughs> yeah. because this is actually just paper. Yeah. So I want to thank, I want to thank William Stieg through time and space <laughs> for uh, for adding those practical elements to save things getting really super gunked up. Well, and it's also interesting because one of our things is on, uh, we have a little outside pizza oven. And so every Friday night is pizza night. And so we do make like a billion pizzas every Friday because it takes like a minute to cook them. And so every time, like if we cook them outside, the kids are just like, they want to lay down on the outside table and be like, do pizza, pizza. And so like, as we're making real pizza, like we have to stretch the dough and then we have to stretch them. And if we add cheese, we have to add cheese. You know, just like, And you, the, the catch line of like, how about a pepperoni, Petey? It's like, they cannot stop laughing. I, I don't know. Like, I feel like I've gotten on a tangent here, but like his books are so good, like for grownups and for kids. They're very good. And um, we can talk about that more when we do the read-alikes for sure. Yeah. One thing I want to touch on is that when I was looking up information about this book, it won, in 1983, it won the National Book Award for Children's Picture Books. But the funny thing about that award is they only had that category two years. Really? They had it in 1982 and 1983, and I didn't have time and I wasn't able to dig up exactly why that was, but that's so funny to me because it won a Newbery Honor and then it won a National Book Award. And it is, I mean, it's a very, very great story. It's told so well. I mean, just like any picture book, it's got an economy of words because of, of the necessity of the format, but it's it's got so much in it and it's so well put together. But it's so funny to me that like it won these two, like two of the biggest awards. Well, it's, I mean, it's funny because it's a picture book, right? And you just don't think of picture books that way, but. Well, it's not only a picture book, it's a comedy picture book. But it's totally deadpan. Totally. It I'm, is. But I always often think of com comedic things as not having as much gravitas as far as awards committees go. No, so. that, that's true. But there's this very good New Yorker article in 2019 by Rahman Alam about how Stieg is so good, but also like illuminates the very hard and scary things for kids and how it's refreshing for kids because it's so hard as a child to get adults to tell you the truth about hard things. And he talks about Sylvester, actually. And the quote from that one is, his mind began to race like mad. He was scared and worried. Being helpless, he felt hopeless. And it's just that the brevity, right, but the simplicity, and that resonates both for kids and for adults. You know, you can have... You can have politics and you can have pandemics and you can have even this like prosaic fear of going to the dentist, but William Stieg does not pull his punches for anybody. And I think that is what makes him so timeless because as a kid, you're reading just a story and it might be scary, but it makes sense to you. And as an adult, you see all these other layers, but it, it doesn't stop feeling pertinent. And that lack of complicity in the the sort of fairy tale childhood story that we tell children is I think what makes him so popular. 
I think that what we're seeing here is a high wire act and it, because we it's so seamless it seems simple and easy. And I think that anytime you have to boil down a bigger story into 32 pages and most of it is taken up by pictures, I think you're looking at someone who is a master of their craft that they pull off something this good. But I, I think also it's not seen that way by a lot of people. And I don't know if that'll ever change, but I think it's cool that those of us who are in the know can have this little secret joy and, and see it as that way, see it in that way. Yeah. Well, I think also the fact that he started as a cartoonist helped so much because it helped him like really boil things down to the little nugget of of truth or comedy. And I think he was, first of all, like a visual person before anything else. And then he made the words fit the picture. So I think that even though his words are perfectly chosen, the pictures tell more of the story than the words do. So like you only have the 32 pages of text, but you also have 32 pages of pictures, which are very illuminating for the story. Another one of the interesting things is just that he had such an interesting personal life, right? He was, his comics were wonderful little pieces of art, but he himself had like this epic life. He had, he was married four times. He had three kids. His first wife was Margaret Mead's sister, weirdly enough. He lived in the famous house in, I think, Brooklyn. That's like the tiniest house in New York. It's like eight and a half feet across that other famous like authors lived in. All of his family are artists because his parents were immigrants and they didn't have the money to send them into professions, right? So they said we don't want you to be workers because you're going to get exploited by the businessmen. And we don't want you to be businessmen because you're going to exploit workers. So you have to be artists. And so like all of his family turned out to be these crazy artists, but in a really fun and nice way. Even one of his kids actually is a jazz flautist and plays the Pied Piper in one of the Shrek movies. Like it's just amazing. His life is like this crazy, interesting like not bad drama, but a little bit of drama way, you know, with divorces and kids and for the time that was a little bit scandalous, but not too scandalous and just interesting places to live and interesting jobs. And like, he just sounds like he would have been the kind of person you want to sit down and have a drink with to me. Yeah. He sounds like that to me too. Yeah. <laughs> but all that aside, like, I think that informed his writing and his cartoons and we've just all benefited, you know, like his, the, there's ambiguity in his, in his picture books, which at least in older picture books, you don't often get, you know, there's layers of good choices, bad choices. Nobody is like entirely good and nobody's entirely bad. People are going to make bad choices and try to take advantage of you and you can only just do your best. You know, be smart and and be kind, but like, but be smart. <laughs> and you may be small, but you can be mighty. Exactly. So do you have any read-alikes for this book? I do. I actually, I wanted to recommend the Ralph S. Mouse books by Beverly Cleary. Mm-hmm. It's a trilogy. And talk about a smart mouse. We get into some really good 
quality mouse genius when you get into the Ralph books. So those are the mouse and the motorcycle, Runaway Ralph and Ralph S. Mouse. And I just, they're just so, they're such a part of my childhood and such joyful reads and they're just, I can't recommend them enough. And then Frederick by Leo Leone. It's the story of a singular mouse who's very daydreamy and seems to be shirking his duties of getting ready for the winter, but he's actually gathering the sights and sounds around him. And so for, and it's also a picture book. So for a read-alike of a mouse who is smart in an unconventional way, I thought that was a good, a good read-alike. What about you, Marcy? Well, as previously discussed, because we still need to sort of suss out how we feel about him. But I guess what I'm trying to say about Roald Dahl is that for me, learning about the anti-Semitism in his books is new. And I've got more work to do to uncover that. But my knee-jerk reaction to recommending somebody who is similar to William Stieg is just Roald Dahl in terms of writing style and willingness to not pull punches about telling kids the hard parts of life, but also being funny. My other read alike is less problematic and it's not, I don't know how to describe it. It's not graphic novel per se. It's, it's actually just comics the way that William Stieg drew comics. But for me, Gary Larson is a read alike. So if you want to read a far side collection, William Stieg had this thing where he thought that animals were a lot more dynamic, right? He could do more with them. He could have them do crazier things. They were more inherently not personable, but they had characteristics that are associated with animals that don't need to be explained already. So like they're already sort of characterized and they could do these different things. And I feel like Gary Larson did that too, especially with the cows, but with all kinds of animals. I remember ones with the chickens and like various crazy animals in crazy scenarios. And I think that if you like the William Stieg vibe, right? Like Gary Larson had this total hilarious deadpan delivery of thousands upon thousands of jokes. And it's delightful. And I have, I think, every single book he ever put out. And while it's not the same as reading a novel or even a graphic novel, that's probably the best similar thing that I can find. I think that's a great suggestion. (laughs) Thank you. So this is one of our COVID episodes, so we are not we are not recording together, so we're not drinking together. But as previously promised, we will be drinking and eating together sometime in the hopefully nearish future and do a couple of episodes to do catch up on the themed snacks and cocktails. Heaven help us or in all. In this case, in this case, <laughs> a foxtail. A foxtail or a dry white wine if you so prefer. Preferably not served with raw mice because, ugh. Don't make me eat a mouse. I will not make you eat a mouse. Thank you. (laughs) Maybe some carpaccio, though. (laughs) In any case, we we thank you for joining us today for the Newberry Tart Podcast. We were discussing Dr. DeSoto by William Stieg, which is the first episode in our seventh season, 1983, Newberry Honor and Middle Books. Next episode, we'll be talking about Graven Images, written by Paul Fleischman. Thanks for listening. Bye. 
Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.